Good, well, good morning, everybody. And uh, can I add my welcome to that that's already been extended? Uh, just a couple of things to say before we begin. I want to say a special thank you to everyone who uh, played such an important role in making the walk yesterday a great time for us as a church. Thank you very much indeed. Um, and today is, is a slightly sad day because we say farewell to John and Joanne, uh, who are heading back to the Caribbean. Uh, we are only letting them go temporarily. Uh, we are insisting they come back, but it's been lovely to have you with us, and Godspeed on your journey. <laughs> Good. Well, I do hope that uh, you'll have your Bible open at John chapter 2. Uh, if you're using a church Bible, it's page 749. And you might also like to have the white bulletin open, and you'll find in there an outline which tells you where we're going in the next few minutes. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to ask for God's help. Well, at this time, Lord, when we remember the Reformation with great thanks, we celebrate the privilege of an open Bible. And we pray, Lord, this morning that your word would be our rule and guide, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, there is a place in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul is writing to a young man called Timothy. Uh, and he says this, he says, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now those are very wise words because some things in life really are so valuable, so good, so precious, that we must guard them carefully. We must hold on to them no matter what the cost. Now that is how the reformers thought about the gospel. Uh, as the reformers looked at the church, they saw an institution that had wandered away from the truth and they recognised that when the truth of the gospel is lost, actually the Christian faith is lost. And so these men and women of 500 years ago, they were moved to put their, their livelihoods, uh, their homes, their money, even their own lives on the line to restore the essential teachings of the gospel to the church. And these teachings have been handed down to us in five Latin phrases. Don't worry about that. If you don't know Latin, I don't know it either. But uh, just for the sake of, of accuracy, five Latin phrases, each beginning with the word solar, uh, which isn't talking about solar heating. It's a word that means alone. And when you put these five phrases together we see what a very, very beautiful thing it is when a person is saved. So in our first study, we saw that we are saved by faith alone. The Latin phrase, if you're interested, is sola fide. And that is that we're saved by putting all our trust for salvation in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and not by working to earn God's favour for ourselves. Secondly, we learn that we're saved 
by grace alone. The phrase is sola gratia. It means that salvation is a free gift. It's not a reward for good behaviour. Thirdly, our salvation is through Christ alone, solus Christus. It reminds us that there's no place for any other mediator between God and man. No priest, no saint, they can't help us, I'm afraid. Jesus alone is the way. Fourth, we learn about this marvellous salvation through the scripture alone, sola scriptura. It means that God's word is the supreme authority in all matters of faith and practice. It takes priority over all government, every human tradition, every bishop, every denomination, and any personal religious experience. And now this morning we're thinking about the fifth solar, which is soli deo gloria. And that tells us that when we're saved, all the glory goes to God alone. We don't take any credit whatsoever, either for anything that God does to save us, or anything that we do by way of response. The glory goes to God and no one else. I think rather a good way to think about all this is that the first four solas are like the four fingers of your hand. And the fifth solar is your thumb. Uh, And when you clench your fingers together to make a fist, you know perfectly well that your thumb stands out above the rest. In exactly the same way, when we understand and we rightly value that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the scripture alone, in Christ alone, and we hold these four things together and wrap our thumb around it, the glory of God stands out as it should. Now that's telling us something really rather interesting about this word glory. What on earth do we mean when we talk about the glory of God? Well, quite simply, the glory of God is his character on display. It is God's character standing out like the thumb on my clenched fist. It is his holiness, his righteousness, his kindness and his power. And that's all on display for the world to see. And it happens in two ways. So firstly, God reveals his glory to us in everything that he does and in everything that he has already done, starting at creation, going all the way through to the last day. So the Bible is the revelation of God's glory. But secondly, the glory of God is seen when you and I respond to him by giving him the honour he deserves in our daily lives. So uh, the composer, Johann Sebastian Bach, when he was satisfied uh, with one of his cantatas, 
he would write at the bottom the initials S-D-G, Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. And that's because Bach knew that his musical genius was a gift from God and he wanted all of the praise for his amazing music to go to God alone. Now, friends, that is how it should be with us. But, you know, it's very, very easy for you and I to rob God of his glory. Uh, I think one of the great blessings of being a Christian in the 21st century is that there are so many famous Bible teachers available to us through the internet and in other ways. Uh, Men like John Piper and uh, Don Carson and Tim Keller and many more. How easy it is for us to put them on a pedestal and to give them the glory that properly belongs to God. Now, of course, they don't want us to do that. But let me ask you, don't you sometimes find that uh, you're more excited about what John Piper said in his podcast than about what God actually said in his word? And what about the very large, enthusiastic church gatherings that are so popular today? Of course, some of them are absolutely marvellous. I don't want to take away from any of that. But you see, it is very easy, isn't it, for us to be more excited about being part of the large, enthusiastic church gathering than it is about being part of God's eternal plan. So you and I constantly need to refocus our hearts and our minds on the glory of God. And John chapter 2 is a great place to start. You'll see that if you come with me to verse 11, which is really the key verse this morning. John chapter 2 verse 11, I'll read it. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So can you see that the marvellous miracle in our passage this morning is teaching us about the glory of Jesus? What can we learn? Well, we're going to look at it under three headings. Firstly, the sign itself. Then the significance of the sign. And then lastly, what we have to do about it, our response to the sign. So firstly, the sign itself. Now, of all the Gospel writers, only John describes the miracles of Jesus as signs. He's actually carefully selected seven of them. And he's done so with a very specific and clear purpose in mind. To find what it is, keep a finger in John 2 and turn with me please to John 20 on page 767. Gospel of John, chapter 20, page 767 and the left-hand column. We're looking at verse 30. John 20 and verse 30. 
This is what John says. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So pause on that. Let's think about this for a moment. Uh, Of all the many wonderful miracles that Jesus did, John has chosen these particular seven according to three criteria. Firstly, they are eyewitness accounts of events that actually took place. Because you can see in verse 30, John tells us that Jesus performed these signs in the presence of his disciples. Secondly, these signs are all pointing to the same great truth. Now that, of course, is the purpose of a sign. Uh, You know in your own experience that when you're, you're on a journey and you see a sign pointing to your destination, well, that's a pretty big clue. You haven't got there yet. So on Friday night, which was our date night, uh, Gillian and I set off for the waterfront. And there we were, driving down the freeway, and as we got to the convention centre, there was a sign saying, turn right if you want to go to the waterfront. Now, of course, if we'd stopped at the sign... If we'd parked there on the freeway, stopping under the sign, we would have missed all the marvellous delights of the waterfront. And of course, if we'd stopped there long enough, well, we'd have been towed away. Now, you see, you must follow a sign until you reach the destination. And it is exactly the same with the signs in John's Gospel. Uh, The seven signs are always pointing beyond themselves to the truth about Jesus. And in order to understand them, uh, we've got to follow them in order to get to the truth that they're pointing us to. Have you got that clear? Interestingly, all these seven signs are miracles of creation. So they are eyewitness evidence of something that John said in the introduction to his Gospel, which is that through him, through Jesus, all things were made. And these signs are therefore definitive proof that Jesus is the Creator God. And then thirdly, when we've grasped who Jesus really is, the third purpose of these signs, according to John, is that we should have life in his name. So now we've got that framework crystal clear in our minds. Come back to John chapter 2. Because in verse 11, John tells us that this was the first of his miraculous signs. Now the word translated first in our Bibles is a very interesting word. Because it can mean first in a numerical sense. uh, The first in a sequence but it can also mean first in the sense of being primary or being a pattern or being a type. Now, which meaning do we think John has in mind here? 
I was puzzling over that this week, and I think the answer is both. So this was the first of many miraculous signs that Jesus performed. It was number one. And it is the pattern for understanding all the rest. In other words, if we don't understand this sign, this miracle, we won't understand the other six. So how are we to understand it? Well, as we've already discovered, we've got to start by recognising that we're dealing with a real historical event. John tells us that the disciples were present at the wedding, and of course that included John himself. So we're dealing here with an eyewitness account of an event that actually took place. And we must see it first of all in those terms before we look for a deeper meaning. Now, uh, we're all familiar, aren't we, with the atmosphere of a family wedding. Uh, There's a tremendous sense of excitement and uh, of a new beginning for the couple as they start out on their new life together. And that day in Cana, just as the party was getting into full swing, there was what we might call today a catering crisis. Because in verse 3, they have no more wine. Now, in that culture, I discovered this this week, this was new to me, I wonder if it's new for you, Uh, weddings usually began on a Wednesday and uh, they would run all the way through to Friday night uh, when people rushed off home in order to be back in the building uh, in time for uh, Sabbath. And in those days, it was the bridegroom, not the bride's father, who was responsible for the feast. And uh, there's evidence that if the wedding wasn't actually up to scratch, then the bride's parents could sue the bridegroom for damages. Imagine that. So, can you see that to run out of wine was not only a source of acute embarrassment and very public shame for the bridegroom, but of course, if his in-laws took him to court it could be extremely expensive as well. But, on this occasion, Jesus was on the guest list. And we must be very careful, I think, as we read this, not to miss the very lavish and generous way that Jesus responds to the situation. I mean, it would be cause for wonder enough, wouldn't it, if Jesus simply rescued the groom by providing a little bit more of the same quality wine that had run out. Uh, Pinotage Ordinaire, or whatever it was. But uh, Jesus doesn't do that. No, he totally transforms the situation. So that the master of the banquet says to the bridegroom, you have saved the best wine till now. And not just a little notice. It was wine in abundance. In fact, far, far more than they ever would need. You know, there were six stone water jars, um, each one containing up to 30 gallons. And if you do the mathematics, Jesus created 700 bottles of top quality wine 
so that the bridegroom could not possibly be ashamed and the wedding, well, it would be a tremendous success, wouldn't it? Of course it would. Now, of course, there is a much deeper message here, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But we do need to learn from this that Jesus is intimately concerned with all of the details of our lives. I don't know whether you agree with me, but I think there are many Christians who go through prolonged periods of anxiety because they imagine that their problems are somehow too insignificant for Jesus to be bothered. And so they never ask him for help. But you know, I assume that John intends us to see the words of Jesus' mother as a prayer. Look at verse 3. She says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Now, you can't have a simpler, shorter prayer than that, can you? I mean, we're not talking complicated liturgy here, are we? And Jesus answers her prayer in the most generous way imaginable. So I think there's a very important lesson for us here that when we pray in faith, even with simple, very short, uncomplicated prayers about a particular pressing need, Jesus is absolutely delighted to answer. But there's something else here. Because it's very important for us to understand that in the Bible... Throughout the Old Testament particularly, wine stands for joy and gladness. God provides wine to make glad the heart of man. Now we don't always see that, do we? Because wine and alcohol has become such a problem in South Africa. Uh, And because we often abuse God's good gift of wine, uh, we end up in the rehab or in the cancer ward or wherever it is. And that distorts our attitude to wine. But you see, friends, we mustn't let our own foolishness and disobedience blind us to one of the great applications in John chapter 2. That everything Jesus gives for the good of mankind, he gives in abundance and he gives it for our enjoyment you probably know a little bit later in this gospel Jesus himself says I have come that they may have life and have it to the full see our Christian walk brothers and sisters will be extremely dull and joyless if we lose sight of that basic and very wonderful truth Now, while all of that, of course, is important, we mustn't stop there because, as I said before, the sign is pointing to something much deeper. So we must hurry on and consider the significance of the sign. Now, one of the golden rules about reading the Bible is that we must not allow the chapter divisions to govern our understanding of the text. Uh, I think I've told some of you before that there is a tradition which we have to take with a massive pinch of salt that the uh, chapter divisions were decided by a monk in the Middle Ages and uh, the story goes that he was on a long journey on horseback and uh, to pass the time he decided to divide up his Bible into more manageable units and uh, whenever his horse went over a bump Uh, His quill pen slipped, and that became a chapter division in the Bible as we have it today. 
Uh, don't use that in your exams, brothers. Uh, it won't pass. Um, it's really just a quaint way of saying that the chapter divisions in our Bibles were not inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we mustn't allow them to decide the way that we read the text. Now here, the chapter division at the end of chapter 1 is decidedly unhelpful, because the account of the wedding is intimately connected to what has gone before. You see, in chapter 1, John has been telling us how Jesus called his first disciples, including a man by the name of Nathaniel. And right at the end of the chapter, in verse 51, Jesus gives Nathaniel a marvellous promise. Can we all see verse 51 in our Bibles? Page 749 on the right-hand side. Verse 51. Jesus then added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that, of course, is a reference to the dream that Jacob had back in Genesis chapter 28. Uh, St. Barnabas regulars know the story well, but let me remind you of the main details. Um, Jacob was in disgrace. Uh, He had deceived his brother Esau and his father Isaac, and he was running away. Uh, He was running away not only from his family, but also from everything that God had promised to do through him. His life was a total mess. But when Jacob fell asleep, he had a dream. He saw the Lord tearing open the heavens and a staircase coming down from heaven to earth with angels ascending and descending on it. And you may remember that on that occasion, God came down the staircase And God promised Jacob that in spite of all of his mess-ups, in spite of all of his wrongdoing, God would be with Jacob and would rescue him from shame and from disgrace. And ultimately, God promised to bring blessing to all the nations of the world through Jacob's family. And now here, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that Nathanael will see angels ascending and descending, not on a staircase, but on the Son of Man. Now you see, what Jesus is saying is that Jacob's dream was pointing to Jesus. That Jesus has come to fulfil the promise that God gave to Jacob. How on earth is he going to do it? Chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana. You see, the sign at the wedding, the miracle at the wedding, is telling us something about how Jesus will fulfil the promise that God gave to Jacob. And in case you want uh, any more proof of that, it's very interesting, a little bit later on in John's Gospel, he tells us that Nathanael came 
from Cana in Galilee, chapter 21, verse 2. It's very interesting, you see, because Cana was a tiny little village. It was no more than a little dorpy, really. It's very likely that Nathaniel would have been at the wedding. Entirely possible that it was a member of Nathaniel's family that was getting married. And so what happens at the wedding is telling us how Jesus will fulfil the promise that God gave to Jacob. Now I think once we've got that clear in our minds, some of the details in the story fall neatly into place. For example, at first sight, Jesus' reply to his mother's request seems a little odd. Just look at verse 4. Imagine talking to your mother like this. Dear woman, uh, why do you involve me? Uh, Jesus replied, my time, my time has not yet come. Now, the word translated time in our Bibles is actually usually translated by the English word hour. And uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus often talked about his hour. Um, You don't need to look at it now, but on the back of the green question sheet, I've given you the most important occurrences uh, of this statement that Jesus makes about his hour. Look it up later. You know, what is so fascinating is that Jesus' hour is always not yet. All the way through to the moment when some Greeks, some people from the nations, come to the disciples in chapter 12 and say, we'd like to see Jesus. And it is only then, when Jesus knows that the word about him has got out to the nations, that he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the point is, you see, that from the very beginning, Jesus knew that he hadn't come to be a miracle worker. No, his mission would be fulfilled at a predetermined hour. And in chapter 12, Jesus describes his mission like this. He says, but I, when I am lifted up on the cross, will draw all men to myself. That will be the hour of Jesus' glory. The, the hour when his character will be on display for all the world to see. So here, in John chapter 2, the thoughtful reader, and I'm sure that's all of you, the thoughtful reader will want to know, well, what on earth is the connection between Jesus' hour and the sign at the wedding? What's the link? Why does Jesus say, my hour has not yet come, and then do the miracle anyway? John tells us in verse 6 that nearby stood six stone jars. They were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. They were very large. You couldn't possibly miss them. And they were an obvious reminder to the guests at the wedding of man's constant need for cleansing in order to have fellowship with God. You see, sinners can't have fellowship with God when they're still dirty from sin. That was what ceremonial washing 
was all about. It was all about getting clean enough for God. But of course it was only a ritual. The washing never actually got the job done. And so uh, Jesus uses these stone jars here, not simply to remove the shame and the disgrace of of the bridegroom, but also to illustrate his mission. And he was actually drawing on a very famous and very important Old Testament promise. What was it? Well, keep a finger in John 2 and turn, please, to Isaiah 25 on page 495, right-hand column. Isaiah 25, verse 6, page 495. This is very important, so let me hear the rustling of the pages. When I know you're all there, I'll read it. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Are we all there? Good. Verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that envelops all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely, this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So friends, the abundance of excellent quality wine at the wedding feast at uh, at Cana is a sign of the identity of Jesus. He is the sovereign Lord. And it is also a sign of his mission, the salvation that he's going to accomplish on the cross. He's going to swallow up death forever. He's going to remove the disgrace from all the people of the earth. There'll be no need for any more ceremonial washing to get us clean enough for God. In fact, there'll be no need for any more religious practice at all because Jesus will have done everything necessary. And afterwards, he's going to host the most amazing party for all his people. That is the glory that Jesus was revealing at the wedding at Cana. And verse 9 says that everybody who's had their disgrace removed by the Lord Jesus will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. My friend, can you say verse 9? Can you? On the last day, will you be at that amazing party with Jesus? Perhaps you don't know. Perhaps you're not sure. 
The good news is you can be sure. So come back with me one last time to John chapter 2 as we consider very briefly our response. The response we should be making to this sign. Now, a fascinating detail in uh, the Gospel of John is that the mother of Jesus only makes two appearances. Here, and then again at the foot of the cross in chapter 19. And on both occasions, she is not mentioned by name. John doesn't refer to her as Mary. She is simply Jesus' mother. And you see, her namelessness is there to show us that Jesus deals with her on the basis of the compassion that he has for every disciple. She's just one of us. And therefore, as a disciple to whom Jesus listens and responds, we need to pay very careful attention to what she says to the servants in verse 5. What does she say to the servants? She says, do whatever he tells you. And you can't miss the fact, can you, that it is their obedience to the command of Jesus that leads to the wonderful miracle of total transformation, isn't it? Now you see, there's an important principle here, isn't there? Which is that in the New Testament, faith and obedience always go together. We can't separate them. And the signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John are there to show us who Jesus is in order that we will obey him. And it's only as we obey the commands of Jesus that we begin to enjoy the abundant life that Jesus came to give us and that we have a sure and certain hope for the future. So, if you want to know whether God is expecting you at this marvellous party on the last day, you need to ask yourself, are you doing whatever Jesus tells you? I know you know his teaching, all of you know it, but the great question is not whether you know his teaching. The great question is, are you doing what he tells you? So where do you stand this morning? Have you seen his glory? Have you put your faith in Jesus as the disciples did that day? Are you consciously and purposefully obeying his teaching? Well, if you are, then know for certain that he has washed all your disgrace away. All the disgrace of your sin is gone. And when the time eventually comes for you to die physically, you have nothing to fear. Because the physical death of your body will bring you immediately and consciously into the presence of Jesus, where you will be more alive than you've ever been. In fact, your life here will seem to be as tasteless as water in comparison with the joy and gladness of being in his presence forever. So you have every reason for rejoicing now and you have a wonderful future ahead of you.
But my friend, if this is simply a, a nice story for you and nothing more, can I encourage you to pray a short prayer this morning and ask the Lord Jesus to open your eyes so that you see him stretched out there on the cross. There he is, arms outstretched, inviting all people everywhere to come to him for washing. Permanent, once for all, washing. That invitation is for you, and it's for you this morning. Let's pray. Let's have a moment of quiet. Perhaps you've been a Christian for many years and yet your life sometimes seems as tasteless as water because you've stopped doing what Jesus tells you to do. Bring your life to him again this morning, confessing your sin, confessing your rebellion. Submit to his authority. Open your life to his forgiving love and to the life of the Holy Spirit. Let him change that tasteless water into the best wine, into a life of joy and gladness in the enjoyment of his transforming love and grace. Let Jesus reveal his glory in your life. But perhaps some of us have never turned to him. We know all about the gospel. We've never done anything with it. And this morning is the moment when he's saying to you, do whatever I tell you. Not because a preacher says it, but because God is calling you personally. Will you turn to him? Will you trust him in the quietness of these moments? Will you confess your sin and repent of everything that keeps you from going God's way and cast yourself on his mercy? Asking for his forgiveness, his love, his joy, his peace, Let's pray in the stillness. Thank you, Lord, for listening to us, and thank you for answering our prayers. You have said that the person who comes to me, I will never turn away. So, Lord, please bless each person who has asked for that touch of your power on their lives this morning. 
And as we turn to you in faith, change and renew us. Make us the people you want us to be, that we might be a display of your glory as you have revealed it to us, full of grace and truth. Amen.